We continue in our, our series of Romans, uh, the book of Romans, and we're going to be looking in chapter 7 today. So if you turn there, we're going to kind of start more in the middle of the chapter with verse 14. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul was an expert in the law. I mean, he understood that the law was good and valuable. He also understood that in himself he was not good and could not live up to the law's expectations because of his sin nature. And Paul learned that victory over the sin nature was possible only through Jesus Christ. When believers realize they still struggle with the inward nature of sin, they must come to understand there is victory in Jesus. If you learn anything today, that's what you should hear. When you realize your struggle with the inward nature of sin, you must come to understand there is victory in Jesus. Every, every believer experiences the joy of having one's sins forgiven. You, those of you who have Jesus as your Savior, you've experienced that. You know about that. You, 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 you live in that forgiveness. Peace with God overshadows everything else. But eventually we come down from the mountain of this initial experience and discover that Satan is still alive and temptation is still real and sin is still something with which we must contend. We often feel we are being pulled in two directions at times. Who will win the struggle this time? The spirit or is it self? And how do we deal with this inner turmoil? We're, today we're going to look at uh, this conflict and how we can resolve it as well. Now, throughout his letter to the Romans, Paul systematically argued that righteousness comes as a result of faith. Remember back in chapter 1, he argued that all people are without excuse before God because he has revealed himself to, to them through creation. And in chapter 2, he argued that the Jews who had the advantage of being given the law were equally guilty because they did not follow it. And in chapter 3, we looked at how he, he argued that, that since all people are sinners, God has made righteousness available through faith in Jesus. And then chapter 4 shows how Abraham's righteousness was a result of his faith. And then chapter 5 of Romans, Paul showed how Adam brought death to all humanity through sin, but Jesus brings life. And then in chapter 6, he indicated how a believer is dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Romans 7 is one of the most uh, difficult chapters of Paul to understand. It seems to some as if it is totally out of place. It's coming between declaration of, of, of death to sin and, and resurrection to new, to new life in chapter 6, and then in chapter 8, where we hear that there is now no condemnation. I mean, to talk about, to talk about a, a lingering sin, even a persistent struggle with it, seems kind of odd at this point. It seems like it should just kind of flow right into those things, but he stops, chapter 7. It raises, kind of raises a number of, number of questions if you look at that chapter. In his illustration from marriage, just who are the marriage partners? And who is spoken of as having died? And also when Paul spoke of his struggle with sin, was he referring to it as a pre- or post-conversion experience of Christianity? 
how we answer these, these two questions here will have a lot to do with how we interpret this chapter 7 of Romans. But up until now, Paul had been addressing the issue of sin. In the first six verses of chapter 7, he shifted his focus to the law. He declared that the, only, that the law only has authority over a person while alive. And to illustrate his point, Paul used the example of the law of marriage. He argued that if one partner leaves the other to marry a third uh, party, that person becomes an adulterer because the legal contract is still in force. But if one of the partners dies, the other is freed from the law's binding force and becomes free to marry another. We were formerly married to the law, bearing fruit that led to death. But in Christ, we died to the law, making it possible for us to now be united with Christ and bear fruit for God. One of the unique and wonderful things about this passage of Scripture, other, other than the difficulty of reading it, if you've ever read through chapter 7, starting with verse 14, it gets kind of difficult to keep track of. But the most wonderful thing about all this is, in this portion, portion of Scripture is the openness of Paul to his own struggle. You see it right there in front of you as he just declares that that struggle is going on. And this is not just every man's struggle, but it is Paul's particular struggle. And he was an expert in the law, but the law couldn't save him. It only revealed the sinfulness of his own heart. Because of the sin nature that resides within us, the law also provokes us to sin as well. And Paul said that sin sees the opportunity afforded by the commandment, that is, do not covet, and actually produced within him every kind of covetous desire. But nevertheless, we begin with what Paul describes as the law being good. If you follow along with me in verse 14 of chapter 7. We'll take a look at these uh, few verses here. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I will stop right there, verse 17. Now, Paul described an experience that is common to every person. All of us, sooner or later, all of us become aware that we've been wrong and we are not yet what we need to be or want to be. If anyone should know about the law, it would be Paul, because he became a Christian before he became a Christian, he was a, a zealous Pharisee. Uh, he, he was a conservative Jew who held the, the law in high regard. In fact, if someone tried to find fault with him, Paul could testify that he had been, as Philippians chapter 3 says, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So we're not surprised to read Paul's statement when he says that the law is spiritual in verse 14 and later declaring that the law is good in verse 16. And he even found delight in God's law in verse 22. We still hold the law in high esteem today. The moral law teaches us what is right 
was wrong. But as good as the law is, it is powerless to help us keep its commands. It can only instruct us. If we disobey the law, it will condemn us. But it cannot free us from sin or enable us to keep every commandment. The law doesn't do that. While we understand that the law is good, we look at our own behavior and we see a contrast there. Something that just doesn't match up. The law is good, but we are not good because sin dwells in us. Look with me in verses 18 through 25. I'll try to follow along with the, all the uh, what I do and do not do and do and everything else. Paul says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. We'll stop right there. So the problem Paul described in this passage it really is not with the law. The real problem is with the sin nature. The truth is that even believers can struggle with the pull of sin, the temptation that is there. And in this passage, Paul described an, an inner war that is taking place in his spirit. He was losing most of the battles within his spirit when left to his sinful nature. And Paul mentioned a tendency towards sin. He, one thing Paul indicated was that, he, that we tend to sin in spite of our knowledge. A tendency to sin in spite of our knowledge. His problem was not that he didn't know what was right and what was wrong. And we, we often say with regard to people's behavior, if only they knew better. If only they knew and then we proceed to try to give people better knowledge so they might make better choices. In some regards, I guess that's, that's fine. You know, that is the strategy in, the, in our country here when it comes to sex education and drug awareness. We believe that if students will only be correctly informed as to the risks and dangers of their actions, then they will refrain from those behaviors. That hasn't happened, really. Unfortunately, increased knowledge does not stop people from sinning. Knowledge may be power, but it is powerless to keep people from sinning. People tend to sin in spite of their knowledge. It really doesn't matter how much they know. If they have not yet come to a place where they have died to sin in Christ, they are still a slave to sin. So there's a tendency to sin in spite of our knowledge. And Paul then also too indicated that we, uh, we sin in spite of our resolve. So there's a tendency to sin in spite of our resolve. 
He wrote in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Desire to do good is great. Uh, it's wonderful. We, we probably have a desire to do that. We want to do what is right. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we, we all have that. I mean, just think about January 1st when it rolls around. Every year we all tend to make resolutions to improve certain areas of our lives, right? And we intend to do those things. We resolve to lose weight. We resolve to exercise, become disciplined in our devotional life bring our spending under control, and all those things. By the way, how's that going with you? How's, how are those resolutions going since the new year? Most people eventually abandon these great intentions and embrace their old patterns once again. You've probably seen it play out in your life every year when you start off with January 1st. Human nature has an essential weakness in the will because once it comes up against problems, and difficulties and opposition, it generally fails. Now, that's kind of the rule. There are exceptions. There are some extraordinary people who just go, yeah, I've read the Bible three times already this year, <laughs> and that's what I plan to do five more times. You know, it's like, whoa. They, they, they get it down. There's some extraordinary people around us sometimes with that. But most often, most often, we generally, generally fail in this situation. The weakness of the will. And Peter once resolved to, de to never deny Christ and to follow him to the death, but that didn't work out for him very well, did it? He failed miserably. There's a tendency to sin in spite of our resolve. And Paul also confessed that we tend to sin in spite of knowing what the problem is. A tendency to sin in spite of knowing about that problem. In verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. Paul, Paul knew quite clearly what was wrong. He had a sinful nature. But he also recognized that he was unable to put it right. It was, he was like a doctor who could accurately diagnose a disease, but was powerless to prescribe a cure. That diagnosis, he confessed, was that there was a law at work in the members of his body, waging war against the law of his mind and making him a prisoner of the law of sin at work within his members. So we read that in verse 23. So as long as he lived by the law, he was a slave to sin. And Paul's frustration culminated in a, uh, a wail of anguish, crying out to God, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? A guy by the name of Watchman Nee, very interesting name. He was a 20th century Chinese church leader. He was also a Christian teacher and author of many books. He presents an interesting perspective on this wretchedness in his book, The Normal Christian Life. He says that at the time of the writing of Paul's letter to the Romans, a murderer was punished in a peculiar and terrible manner. The dead body of the victim was tied to the living body of the murderer, head to head, hand to hand, foot to foot. And the living one was bound to the dead one until death. So the murderer could go where he pleased, but wherever he went, 
he had to drag the corpse of that murdered man with him. I wouldn't want to invite that guy over for dinner at all or anything like that. What a horrible form of punishment. Yet this is the illustration Paul used. It is as though he is bound to a dead body, his own body of death, and unable to get free. Wherever he went, he was hampered by this terrible burden. Alas, he could bear it no longer, and so he cried out. And then his cry of despair changed to a song of praise. See that in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He found the answer to his question. It is already done through Jesus Christ. When Paul finally arrived at a solution to his problem, he didn't find it in a program. He found it in a person. He didn't look for the latest method. He asked who, not what, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he recognized that the solution was not in himself and not in the law, but only in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. He declared Jesus not only died to forgive our sins, he also died to cleanse us from the nature of sin. While all of us have lived divided lives, torn between things. We do not have to live defeated lives. In spite of the tendency towards sin, God made possible for us to overcome. Which brings us to chapter 8 of Romans, the first two verses. Let me read those to you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Following Paul's agonizing cry of despair in verse 24 of chapter 7, we find one of the most glorious declarations of God's grace found in all of Scripture. In verse 1 there, he announced that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about it. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is now no more condemnation. Free. Think about it. Let's just let that settle in. You see, sin condemns. Its wages are death. The law condemns. And it only reveals the sinful condition of the heart. But those who are in Christ Jesus are set free from both sin and the law. The reality of the grace of God is both an overpowering and liberating truth. It should make you feel like saying amen on the inside. Maybe on the outside. (laughs) Verse 2, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death results in despair, as verse 24 says in in chapter 7, because of the weaknesses of the flesh in living out God's righteous standards. It just just can't be done. It's too difficult. But God's grace does not relegate us to that condition. If we are in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit actually sets us free from the law of sin and death. As believers, Paul said in chapter 7 that we must be dead to the law because it can't save us. Nevertheless, the righteous requirements of the law don't change. Remember that. 
those requirements aren't nullified. They're still there. They are holy, righteous, and good. A reflection of God's holiness. The God who requires us to be holy as he is holy. Because of the weaknesses of our sin nature, the law was powerless to produce righteousness in us. But God did for us what the law itself was incapable of doing. In order to become holy, we must be delivered from the power of our sin nature. Now through his grace, the one who gives the law actually becomes the one who fulfills the law in us by his spirit. Jesus became a sin offering to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. By his spirit, he actually sets us free from the power of our sin nature. It can happen. Someone has pointed out that it is not, uh, not how long we struggle, but how soon we surrender. Not how long we struggle, how soon we surrender. And this is our opportunity to utter a great yes to God. We confess our captivity to the sinful nature, our inability to overcome our wrong tendencies, our complete dependence on Christ, who alone gives us the power to be victorious. Although we are weak in ourselves, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life will set me free from the law of sin and death. Our victory comes because God gives the energy to desire and do His will. Rather than condemnation, we experience victory through Christ Jesus. Our sinful natures are not eliminated. Remember that. They're not eliminated, but they're cleansed. Yet it is possible for them to wrench control from the Holy Spirit and assert themselves again if we give them permission. That's why we not only say yes to God and submit to His cleansing, but we keep on agreeing with Him and doing His will. It's yes every day. It's yes before God every time. And those sinful uh, temptations come our way. It's saying yes to God and no to those things. We cannot, we cannot attain the cleansed life on our own. Neither can we maintain it on our own. It comes through continual surrender on our part and filling us with the Holy Spirit on His part. We do our part, He does His. And then we walk in His ways. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up and sing, uh, uh, lead us in some singing. And as they do, let me, let me close this, this message. You know, with Christians everywhere, we understand it is not enough to know the problem. We must deal with it. Imagine, imagine your, your house all clean and the kitchen counters are just spotless, dishes are done, put away, everything looks gorgeous. And then you notice, crawling along the countertop is one of those wonderful little sweet ants, sweet sugar ants, crawling along, finding its way, and you just so happen to have this big old apple pie half-eaten right there on the counter. And that ant comes along, and, does, and then another ant comes along following his trail, and another one comes along, and then they go back and bring a few more, and then they go back and bring a few more. And soon you've got this whole wide black trail of specks coming towards this apple pie on your counter. Now you've observed this, and you watched it, and you're going, wow, there's a problem here. 
There are ants coming over here on the counter up to my apple pie, and the apple pie is getting destroyed by these ants. Wow, what a mess. What a problem. Well, I better go to church. <laughs> and you don't do anything about it. If you know the problem, you're probably going to take care of it. I mean, when we've had ants in our house, <laughs> Becky's can attest to this and probably kind of giggle about it too, but I'm like, I'm like, I'm after these ants. I'm going to take care of this stuff. And I take like about a half hour to figure out where they're coming from. I mean, I might see one little ant going, I'm going, okay, where'd he go? Where's he coming from? And then, All right, he must be down here. And, I, and I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm crawling around, I'm flashlighting, I'm looking, because I know that if I go just go, another one's going to come along and do the same, follow that trail and come in. So I just try to track down where those ants are coming from, try to find the root of the problem. Because if you don't take care of that, you're just going to get them coming in again, and there goes your apple pie and your clean kitchen and everything else. We must deal with the problem. Deal with it. And so it is with you today. If you know the problem, why not deal with it by allowing God to do a work in you? For some of us, it may be a matter of forgiving ourselves. If God does not condemn us, and he doesn't if you are in Christ Jesus, then we shouldn't continue to condemn ourselves for our past sins, our past mistakes, our past failures. It's under the blood of Christ. Don't go back there again. When we condemn ourselves, we are refusing to accept the truth of God's word. When we feel we are somehow beyond or beneath God's forgiveness, we are actually demonstrating a, a, a twisted form of pride that says we are so bad that Jesus' work on the cross was not enough for us. But it was enough. His work on the cross was enough and is enough for us. Do you find that you're condemning yourself for your past, even though it's been forgiven? <laughs> Bob Newhart's words, stop it! <laughs> Knock it off! Don't go back there again. It's been forgiven. It's been taken care of. Remember, Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Has the Holy Spirit spoken to you today about something? Maybe spoken to your heart about an issue that needs his attention? Are you done with the struggling? Are you willing and ready to surrender? Altar's open for you if you want to come and pray.